All this month on the History Hit family of podcasts, we've been marking LGBT plus History Month, and I don't want not just the Tudors to be a dishonourable exception. So let me tell you a story. In 1581, Michel de Montaigne, the famed French essayist, visited Rome. In his travel journal, he reported something that had happened a few years earlier, that at the ancient basilica of San Giovanni al Porta Latina, certain Portuguese men had entered into a strange brotherhood. They married one another, male to male, at mass, with the same ceremonies with which we perform our marriages, read the same gospel service, and then went to bed and lived together. His report wasn't quite accurate. Of the men involved, we know that six were in fact Spanish, one Slavic and one Portuguese, and there's many whose nationality we don't know. But broadly speaking, Montaigne had his facts right. To explore the nature of these marriages, the same-sex community that engaged in these rituals, and notions of gender and punishment in the period, today I'm speaking to Dr Giuseppe Marcocci. Dr. Marcocci is Associate Professor in Iberian History and Fellow at Exeter College at the University of Oxford and the Chair of the Oxford Centre for European History. He's the author of the book The Globe on Paper, Writing Histories of the World in Renaissance Europe and the Americas. And his journal article, Is This Love? Same-Sex Marriages in Renaissance Rome, is the basis for our discussion today. I joined him in his rooms at Oxford to discuss the events that took place at San Giovanni in 1578. And just in case you're listening with someone under the age of consent, you should know that there are occasional graphic sexual references in what follows. Well, Professor Marcucci, is absolutely a joy to come and visit you in your beautiful rooms at Exeter College and to talk about this really interesting piece of research that you've done. So we're going to be thinking about this exciting evidence of same-sex marriages. Perhaps we ought to start by thinking about what attitudes were to people desiring somebody of the same sex or even having a relationship with them, having a marriage to them, especially among the Catholics at this time? Yes. Obviously, in Catholic societies, there were multiple attitudes as regards same-sex relations. But I think the first thing is to look at the church and authorities, which somehow always prohibited and persecuted any form of same-sex unions, but in different ways. There are different things to consider. The first one is why the Catholic Church has always been so much against same-sex relations. And here the point has to do with the sterility of a same-sex union. Sexuality for the Church is for reproduction, and any form of sexuality that is sterile is wrong. But there are further elements that we need to consider. One is the fact that since, let's say, after the Black Plague, so we are in the second half of the 15th century, the same-sex unions became something that was more persecuted in Catholic societies in Southern Europe 
and particularly in Italy. And this had probably many reasons, but also I think there is a lot to do with regeneration of a society that is also somehow pursuing new projects of purity, new projects of social order at the time of re-emergence, let's say, after a very difficult period. Sodomy became very much persecuted. It was persecuted both by secular courts and ecclesiastical courts. The main distinction was between acts of sodomy, as the crime was called, that implied just sex, which were more often persecuted by secular courts, and any form of same-sex union that also somehow implied any kind of religious discourse, any kind of suspicious attitude towards dogmas, in which case ecclesiastical courts and also the Inquisition could act. We should say that there was always, from the Middle Ages, a sort of ambivalence as regards the construction of the crime of sodomy, which has very often been seen as very close to heresy, despite not being classified as such. Why this connection between sodomy and heresy? So those who have studied this more carefully have considered somehow the very subversive nature of sodomy as an act that is considered against nature, against sort of natural order, which is somehow seen as blessed by God. And this creates, I think, in medieval societies a sort of link with heresy, which was seen obviously as a wrong belief that challenged dogmas, but also as an attitude that put social order at risk. The heretics as those who could attempt at the unity of community. So from a certain point of view, there is a sort of analogy in the mindset of people of the time who both these heretical attitudes and irregular, for the categories of the time, the non-normative, we would say, sexual unions as both attempting social order. I suppose that sodomy in this time is quite capacious. It means non-reproductive sex between men and women as much as between men, doesn't it? Absolutely. This is a very important point, because if we think from the point of view of the history of sexuality, of course, we as historians are interested in many different acts and many different practices that we can gather from the sources. But if we look at the attitudes of the church, there is a very important distinction. The fact that sodomy was, as they say, perfect or not, that it implied penetration or not. And from this point of view, the fact that male relations implied a natural penetration was seen as something which was more serious and was often persecuted more seriously, whereas female unions were not considered able to have a full penetration without tools. And this was somehow considered less serious. So while we have also trials for sodomy that regarded women, in general, it is a very complicated topic because we have a lot of variety in the sources and we should also consider geography. But if we look at Italy, it's, I would say, quite evident that the gravity that was attributed to male-male complete unions was much higher. Now, in this instance, we're talking about same-sex marriages. So tell us what you have learned about these marriages that are said to have taken place in this ancient Roman basilica in July 1578. Yes, we are in the summer of 1578 in a quite secluded basilica, San Giovanni a Porta Latina, or St. John at Latin Gate, which is behind 
the Baths of Caracalla and close to the Aurelian Walls. And this church was in a particular condition at the time because it was not a parish church. It was a church that was under the jurisdiction of the Basilica of St. John in Lateran. Occasionally, masses were celebrated there, but it was not a church that was regularly frequented. Nonetheless, there was traditionally a group of men who were in charge of the church, caring about it, and it is this element that we should start from, I think. So, at some point in the 1570s, a group of Iberians were in charge of the church. There was certainly an adult man called Marcos Pinto, who was a Portuguese, who was the custodian, this was the title that was given to this figure of the church, and there were hermits, as they were called, young Spaniards in this case, who were part of this sort of team of people who had the church in charge, and they leave it there because we know that in the 16th century, next to the church, there was a building where people lived. So this is the background. What happened is that the church became a sort of point of meeting, of convergence, of a group of Iberians, first of all, but also other men of different backgrounds. So we know that there were various Romans and Italian men, but also there were members of the important Jewish community of Rome who regularly frequented the church. And somehow this secluded position of the church assured them sort of protection. And what, of course, distinguished this man is that they engaged very often in same-sex relationships. We know that somehow this became a place in the city which guaranteed people who had same-sex desire to leave their sexuality in a sort of free way. But there is much more, because there is evidence that rituals somehow imitating marriages took place in the church. And these marriages are described by a variety of sources in different ways, but I think that we can say with a degree of certainty that there was a celebration in which someone dressed as a priest was somehow reading the gospel of the Catholic marriages, that rings were exchanged, that even some sources say that communion was taken, although this is very, I think, ambivalent information. And more interesting, these same-sex marriages were celebrated among two men, one of which was dressed as a woman. So this is evidence which is extraordinary for the period, although there are other cases that existed that are somehow documented, for instance, in Italy, but also in other parts of Europe, in 16th century France, in 16th century Spain. But we never have so much archival evidence as in this case. And we never have this evidence of self-managed marriages, which is, I think, something very important, which raises questions about the meaning of these rituals, it raises questions about where these people drew inspiration from for this. I wonder if we ought to talk about evidence first, because it's hard to reconstruct the meaning of these things without thinking about how we know what we know. So tell me what evidence survives, and if there are contradictions or tensions between the different sources of evidence and how you've handled those. 
The most famous evidence for this episode is a passage in the travel journal that French philosopher Michel de Montaigne wrote together with his secretary, was composed, let's say, in the early 1580s while he traveled across Italy. And at some point he is in Rome in March 1581, so we are less than three years after the marriages that we are discussing, and he writes onto the page of that day that someone told him about these episodes. And Montaigne passage is very rich and also very intriguing, I would say, because he describes the ritual very carefully. He describes the intention. He says that these marriages occurred because through the ritual, these people wanted to make licit what was illicit. And he also tells us something about the outcome. He says that eight or nine of these men were burnt at the stake. So he informs us about a very tragic outcome of this episode. For a long time, this has been the only evidence that was known to historians, to scholars, although there were another couple of pieces that were around. One was a letter from a Venetian ambassador who was in Rome in those days in 1578 and referred to the episode again in quite detailed way. He spoke of Spaniards and Portuguese being involved in an exceptional case of same-sex marriages occurring in a church. He said that this had caused a lot of irritation in the authorities. He writes before the execution of this man. He writes on 10 days or so before. So he's well informed about what is going on after these men were arrested, of course. So he's informed about the trial and he somehow foresee the tragic end of this man. And then I would say the most important piece of evidence that actually we have are three fragments from the actual trial against this man. It's not the original copy of the trial because we know from a source that I have found that the original trial was burned together with the bodies of this man as a sign of the intention to erase the memory of the episode. So clear case of damnatio memoria. But probably, as often happened in the early modern period, there were other copies that were produced by other people intervening in the trial. So this might have been, for instance, a copy of the prosecutor, or other people intervening in the trial. So it's a very complicated thing because these three fragments that I had found in 2008 are parts of a miscellaneous file record that is kept in the State Archive of Rome, the archive which keeps most of the early modern papers produced by the Criminal Court of Rome, which is the court that celebrated these trials. And these three fragments are part of clearly longer piece, although I think that the piece was not huge, because it's clear from a number of details that this trial was celebrated quite quickly. The arrest occurred on 20 July 1578, and the execution took place on 13th August 1578. So we don't know when the actual trial started, but the fragments relate to the week between 28 July and 3 August, a central moment, I would say. And they're very interesting for two reasons. 
First of all, it's evident from these fragments that these men were tortured quite heavily, but known of the fragments include a transcript of declarations given during torture. This is the first element to consider. The second element is that while references to marriages emerge clearly from these fragments, none of these fragments include detailed accounts of the marriages to which the judge in the questions that have remained is clearly making reference. So somehow these fragments that have survived seem to be selected, although this is obviously something that is complicated. I think this relates to an act that occurred probably between the late 16th and the early 17th century, because there is a summary of all the trials that took place in 1578 that was produced in the early 17th century, which doesn't include any reference to these trials. So it's clear that in the early 17th century, within the internal memory of the tribunal, this case had already been silenced somehow. Then there are another set of sources that are very important in my view, which are newsletters that were produced at the time. These newsletters were short summaries of the main news that were circulating in the European capital cities that were in handwritten format and that were prepared for powerful figures of the time, princes, kings, powerful economic figures. We have two series of these newsletters that were produced in Rome in July, August 1578, one for the Duke of Urbino and the other one for the Fugger family, which was a very powerful family, most important bankers in early modern Europe. So these newsletters provide us with the sort of external rumors that surrounded the trials that show many details. We cannot take all of them for truth. There are a lot of internal contradictions. We need to analyze very carefully the content of these newsletters, how they were produced, but also the source of information. Because it is clear that, for instance, the Fugger newsletters were produced by someone who was very close to the Venetian ambassador that I mentioned earlier. And probably either the Venetian ambassador or the author of the newsletters had fresh information coming out from the trial. So that in the same day in which something is said in the trial, as we can see from the fragments, some elements of this questioning is immediately reported in the newsletters. This is the combination of materials I have been able to find between 2010 and 2014 when I have worked on this episode. And this is the kind of materials I've used for this. That is extraordinary because what you're talking about is trying to create a puzzle with huge numbers of the pieces missing that we know that those who are being tried have been tortured, but we don't have their testimony, but we have some evidence of what the questions might have been from elsewhere. And we've got rumours and you're trying to unpick what's true and what's not true. So as we proceed, we are stepping cautiously (laughs) because it's hard to make out what is the case. So I suppose we ought to start thinking about what we know about these weddings and what we can try and figure out about what was going on. Because you've established that getting married to another man in a church is really subversive. It's a very risky thing to do, as we know, we can see from the consequences. 
And we need to try and understand what's going on. Our first thought, of course, is to say, this is love. These are romantic, effective unions. They are declaring that they want to have a lifelong relationship. And we want it to be that because in some ways we're looking for ourselves in the past. So is it that? Or (laughs) is it satirical? Is it parodying a wedding? And Montaigne talks about it as being strange brotherhood as well, doesn't he? So the other possibility, I suppose, is that it's some sort of initiation rite. I don't mean to deny the possibility it could be romantic. I want it to be. But please tell me what you think the evidence tells you. Yes, this is, of course, the key question, I think, here. One of the key questions, for sure. And uh, I think it's very difficult to give an answer. We have some voices of the men who were involved in this episode, because in the fragments of the trial, they speak. But, of course, there is a fundamental element, which is defensive strategy. They are trying to play down what they did. And the key thing that they are trying to play down are marriages. And this is because they were aware that somehow the implications of such a sacrilegious act in a church, we are in counter-reformation Rome, we are after the Council of Trent, we are in a quite intolerant moment in late Renaissance Rome, would have probably worsened their position. But of course, we shouldn't make too much of the fact that it's just a defensive strategy because they somehow first clearly deny it and then at some point they start confessing these marriages, but the meanings that they gave to these marriages are ambivalent. So in some cases, they say that this was parody. This was something that was just made very lightly. They say that they did it before going to bed. So this seems to be in line with what we find in some other evidence, which is a sort of preparatory ritual before having sex. It is a possibility, which, however, I think does not contradict necessarily other elements. In my view, the best attitude to these sources is, first of all, to listen to them very carefully, to try to follow all the different directions that we have. Because certainly when it comes to the history of gender and sexuality, we are in a field which is heavily theorized. And so we have a lot of different expectations and theories about the past. And when the past suddenly contradicts these theories with evidence, there are two tendencies in scholarship. One is just to correct the sources somehow, which I think (laughs) is very dangerous. The other one is just to believe the sources too much or overinterpret the sources. So I would say that I see three elements here. One is clearly the possibility that they are just parody that preceded sex. This is something which is in line, for instance, with another episode about which we are relatively well informed that occurred in, we don't know exactly for how long it lasted, but certainly we have evidence for 1591 in Naples. There, the parodic element is evident, but these rituals took place in the bedroom of someone not in a church. There is a sort of very clear irony around. There was not, for instance, the gospel that was read, but there was a pragmatic document against having sex with women and how better and nicer was to have sex among men. So there is something of this, but I think the Roman evidence is very different nature. So that's the first element. So I think parody can be considered, but I would speak of a serious parody if we are considering the Roman case. There are other two elements. 
One, I think, is the fact that the meaning of marrying within a church, which was a little bit different from just this. Somehow, following Montaigne, but also other external sources, so these are external sources, it's very important to be said, they're not somehow declarations of the men involved in these episodes, they may have had a sort of power to make same-sex unions legitimate, which is something which I am interested in. So one thing that is very important to say is these men are clearly very Catholic. So there is not contradiction between very Catholic and having same-sex relations for them. But of course, this is a big contradiction for the church. And we also have somehow to go back to the early modern period. The sacraments in Catholic cultures have a sort of automatic value. If they are performed according to the ritual, they are, as in Latin expression says, ex opere operato, because you make them, they have an effect automatically. So we would say with a slightly more anthropological approach, they have a sort of magic meaning, right? So a possibility is that at a time in which there is a very intense campaign for marriage, because we are after the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent has reaffirmed the centrality of the ritual of marriage within churches as the only licit form of stable unions. We have to remember in early modern Italy, concubinate was extremely widespread at the time. There is a campaign against concubinate that is occurring in these years, Preachers are preaching constantly for people to marry. There were a lot of alternative forms of coexistence without marrying within the churches. So within this campaign, I think that perhaps the, not necessarily the fascination, but certainly the sense of the importance of marriage as something that made unions licit may have played a role. Another is, of course, the more modern interpretation, something like they are marrying because they are really love, which I have always been skeptical, but I think that we need to discuss this as well, because there are two elements. I am skeptical because these are not stable unions, in the sense that it's clear that marriages occurred repeatedly. The same person may marry more than once, and obviously those who married did not form stable unions. I would say there is not the idea of indissolubility of marriage, which of course is fundamental here. But at the same time, the evidence, and this is something which emerges actually from the trial, presents us with some very clear descriptions of emotions, affective relations. I can speak more in detail about this, but I also think that at least in two cases, we can speak of stable unions that occurred. But these unions actually seem to have occurred outside and beyond these marriages. Of course, we don't know how many marriages were celebrated. We only have two kinds of information. One is about the marriages that are said that were celebrated in fragments, and there is clear information for three of them. And the other thing is that, which is very important, you know, of course, in order to understand why they were arrested that day, we know that on the day in which they were arrested, a wedding should have occurred, and it didn't. So there might have been a leak. It's very complicated to know how the guards of the criminal court of Rome knew about it and decided to go to the church and found this man, actually a large group there. Only 11 were arrested, but the group was much larger that day. 
and somehow discovered them there and arrested them. So the meaning of these marriages is very complicated. And the actual reality of these marriages is also another thing that is very complicated to assess, to ascertain, but that cannot be just left aside as a vague element because depending on the meaning, depending on how often they occurred, depending on the interpretations of these elements, we read the sources in a way or another. And that's very important, I think. Over on the Warfare podcast by History Hit, we bring you brand new military histories from around the world. Each week, twice a week, we release new episodes with world-leading historians, expert policymakers, and the veterans who served. From the greatest tanks of the Second World War. And so what are you actually trying to get out of your tank? You're trying to get maneuverability and you're trying to get a really big gun. Your Tiger and your Panther are there to dominate the battlefield, primarily on the Eastern Front and in the North Africa and all that sort of stuff. But by the time they're actually coming in in decent numbers, that moment has already passed. Through to new histories that help us understand current conflicts. Any invader, any attacker, any adversary will exploit gaps within society. It was true then, it's true today. But the Finns signaled that they were united, and I think that's what the Ukrainians should signal today too. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts, and join us on the front lines of military history. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. One very moving point in your article is this fact that under torture, one of the men, Bernardino del Afaro, expresses caution about what you can say in front of another person and who should know of their behaviour and their practices. And we don't know, as you've just said, but I guess the sort of reasonable assumption would be that somebody has betrayed them, that someone has said what is going on. Yes, for sure. So the evidence you are referring to is actually an extremely interesting passage that one of the most important men in this community, Alfaro, is a declaration that Alfaro made in front of the judge immediately after actually being tortured. And it shows that there was a sort of coded communication and also a lot of care. What he says relates to the day in which they were arrested. And there is someone who they have never seen around. is a Portuguese, it's called Francisco Ferreira. So again, this word of Iberians, that were many Iberians in late 16th century Rome because Italy was somehow under a sort of Spanish hegemony. So of course, there were many Spaniards in Rome at the time. And, and at some point, Bernardino de Alfaro asked to another of the stable members of the community if they could trust this man, if they could speak in front of him. Or 
if he was, as they say, a respectable man, which is a nice expression to refer to those who were not part of the community, somehow mimicking the speaking of what we may assume was the ordinary language of the people in the city. And the interlocutor says, no, I don't think we can speak in front of him. We cannot be explicit and we should not refer to those of us who act as women, as comari, godmothers, probably a possible translation into English, which was the way in which in the community those performing as women were called. It is interesting because you see clearly through this piece of evidence the existence of a sort of community is a complex word, of course, to be used, but there is a sense of internal, external communication and as and they, which is at work here, which is not, however, completely protected. I can tell you another small episode which occurred one day. Another member of this community, actually a friar, because the community also included some religious men, was walking across the Jewish ghetto in Rome on Saturday, on Shabbat. And one of the Jewish persons pointed at him and asked him, aren't you one of the group of good mothers? Aren't you one of the comare? That's quite interesting. So somehow there is some information that is circulating in Rome, but probably in a very limited way. The day in which they were arrested, a number of things occurred. There are new people, like this Francisco Ferreira, who, very interestingly, will be one of the main accusers during the trial. We know, for instance, that there are confrontations, one-to-one confrontation, and he is one of those who participated in these confrontations against the most seriously accused men, the key members of this group. But we also know that one of the two men who was expected to marry on that day didn't come. He was apparently ill. We don't know if this is true or not, but suddenly he disappears. And this might be also part of the explanation, but this is just a hypothesis. So several sources tell us that the priest who celebrated the trial was a hermit, one of these young hermits that were around, someone called Aguilar. And this Aguilar was not there on the day of marriage again. So key figures are not there, and this is interesting. Aguilar will be arrested after, because there are other arrests that will follow the execution of these people, but we don't know anything about his fate. We don't, I haven't been able to find any evidence. But as you were saying, coded communication, a set of strategies to protect themselves, and probably something went wrong, probably someone who knew decided to speak. This is probably the origin of the arrest and the trials, but this is just an hypothesis. Again, we don't have firm evidence for this. Can we talk about the fact that each of these weddings involved two men, and one of them was dressed as a woman? What does this tell us about notions of gender in the period? Yes, once again, I think this is a piece of evidence that challenges a little bit the established scholarship, which tend to think of the emergence of third gender or gender reversal as a practice that dates to the early 18th century, mostly Northern Europe. I think actually that the more we look carefully for early evidence, the more we are likely to find other cases in Southern Europe, in Northern Europe. I think it's very difficult to establish a clear chronology here. And this is very challenging for historians, who, of course, tries to explain the emergence of certain attitudes within specific social contexts. And I think this is one of the big challenges that we have here. 
But certainly this shows that there is a great fluidity. And this is interesting also because there is not stability in gender roles. This is an exceptional case also because it challenges the idea that roles in same-sex unions are very much stable with elderly people playing the active role and young people playing the passive role. And then when you get older at some point, you pass from the passive role to the active role. This case, first of all, shows that there are instances in which two adult men are involved. So the sort of pederastic scheme of two different generations involved in same-sex unions is not confirmed as always being the case. But also the same person in the same period, so not in two different moments of their life, may have played the active or the passive role. So this tells us that although we have limited information about the marriages, and so we know in these three cases who was involved in the three marriages, but we don't know necessarily who was dressed as a woman. We have a lot of other information about sexuality in the trial, where we see clearly that the same person may have had active or passive roles. So this is very important from the point of view of the role of gender within non-normative sexuality that is at the center of this episode. I should also say that when it comes to this act of transvestitism, there is something very interesting also as regards the early memory of this episode. Because whereas we have an attempt of erase memory very clearly in this case, we also have attempts to recover the memory and use it. I wouldn't say that those who recovered the memory were necessarily sympathetic with the episode, quite the opposite. So the episode somehow was weaponized against Spain in the 17th century. So we are at the time of the Black Legend against Spain. So a lot of discourses are being constructed around Europe against Spain, which is still the main European power in the early 17th century. And this occurred also in Italy, where there were some areas of the peninsula which were not under Spanish sort of hegemony. And the main case, of course, is Venice. And a Venetian polemist called Giacomo Castellani in 1618, so 40 years after the episode, in a work in which basically he's accusing Spain of being the very negative political power, having a very negative influence on Europe, he also used the argument of sodomy. And he uses the accusation of Spaniards of being sodomites. And he reminds the episode and he says that there is a painting or there was a painting that he had seen outside the church reproducing the weddings and in which two men, one of which was dressed as a woman, engaged. This information is also immediately there in the newsletters. You also have this circulating. But interestingly, this painting that is recorded somehow by Castellani, which might have been one of the last examples of defamatory paintings, which was a practice quite diffused in late medieval Italy of somehow leaving a portrayal of the crime in the place where the crime had occurred as a sort of warning, is challenged by a manuscript that I found in the Spanish National Library a few years ago, which I still have to write about, but in which a Spanish polemist argued against the truth of Castellani's account. This anonymous author says that he went to Rome and he couldn't find any painting. So the painting, he says, never existed. And there are two things 
that he found particularly problematic, irritating in the memory of the marriages which he didn't deny. So he said, it's true, I've also heard this story. But first, gender. First, it wasn't true that one of the two males was dressed as a woman. This was something which was considered clearly from a Spanish perspective as making the episode even more serious, even more offending their male honor, the male reputation. And uh, the other element is race, which is incredibly interesting. It's clear from the evidence that we have from the trial, and also we have another piece of evidence, which is the description of the day in which they were executed, in which somehow we have a list of their names and their last declarations, although it's not the kind of speech that we have in the English tradition, so it's not that rich, unfortunately. It's clear that they are all from the Iberian Peninsula, whereas this 17th century somehow manipulator of the memory tries to make them pass as people of mixed descent. He says that they were black or mulattoes coming from the Eastern Indies of Portugal. So this is incredibly interesting because it's another way in which reputation is protected somehow from a Spanish point of view. They weren't really Spanish people. They were people who were either Afro-descendants or Asians or mixed-descent persons, but certainly not Spanish, those who were involved in this. And that's, I think, another element which is extremely interesting when it comes to the way in which the surrounding society reacted to the infraction of gender norms. I think this late source tells us a lot about the sort of annoyance, the sort of problem that this episode caused to the contemporaries. I'd like to go back to a point you raised, the being some evidence of stable same-sex couples in the community. And I'd like to explore what that evidence is. So, at least in two cases, and they are both quite fascinating, I think. The first one is between one of the key odals in this group, who was called Robles, a Spaniard, and someone coming from probably Albania, who is called in two different ways in the sources, Baldassarre or Batista. I tend to call him Batista because it seems to me more recurring as the name. So, they had been together for at least 12 years, They tell the judge, I don't think that you have any reasons to lie on this when you are facing a trial for sodomy and you are being also heavily tortured. You don't need to add these details if they are not true. And in fact, we all even have two different accounts. So we can think that in the first case, the less serious perhaps was still a defensive strategy and the second one is probably more realistic. But let's go to the facts as they can be somehow ascertained. They had lived together first in the Flanders at the time in which the Dutch revolt started, clearly, because 12 years before, we were in 1566. So they left, certainly the Flanders at the time of the revolt, when things became very complicated, but it makes a lot of sense, of course, of having them there, because at the time, Flanders were part of Spain. So we have these two men there, and they were already having sexual life together because they escaped twice the flames, they say. So they escaped twice a trial. There's no doubt that justice in the Flanders would have condemned them to death and to be burnt because legislation in the Flanders at the time was harsher than in Italy, where it was not obvious that you were executed for sodomy. And then they split and they met again some years before our episode in Rome. 
And at some point they met with Marcus Pinto, who is the head of this group, and he's the custodian of the church, and they started to regularly attend these meetings and frequent the church. Here we see a lot of stability. We don't have evidence about feelings, in the sense they don't speak about feelings emerging in another case. So there's another couple, which is composed of two former soldiers. They had been both soldiers in Milan, and they clearly referred to the fact that they had already a relationship in Milan. And then they moved to Rome, and they somehow, it's difficult to say if they lived together, because we are not informed about where these people were actually living from the point of view of their house. But at some point, one of the two leave. And there is this very touching description of the moment in which they separate one of the gates of Rome. The one who remained tried to persuade the other to remain, not to leave. There are two men he has never seen, clearly a sense of unknown life of the other person. And the reaction is extremely interesting here because they had spent the last night together. And after the separation, this man goes to Robles, who is one of the members of the other couple I was commenting few minutes ago and tell them, I need to confess, I don't want to have these unions anymore. He's clearly emotionally very upset. So you capture here, I think, a glimpse into the sufferings that ends of these unions may cause to some of, of these people. And yeah, there are other pieces of evidence, but these, I would say, are the two main episodes. And also a real insight there into the feelings of shame and guilt that may have been created by the attitude of the church to same-sex relationships. Absolutely. I think this is also central. It's something which emerges, for instance, also in the case, again, of Robles on the day in which he was executed. So he says that he is writing a letter for his wife, So this is another very interesting element, which adds, of course, a very important, I think, element in terms of queer theories. Some of these people clearly is moving across different lines in their lives. But to the wife, and he says that he always cared about her. So somehow there is also a sense of concerns about the wider world, not just from the point of view of protecting the group from risks, as we have seen earlier with the COD communication, but also in terms of sense of responsibility towards other loved ones. A lot of these men wrote to their parents. So there is something about this as well. So I think that certainly the sense of guilt is also something which existed and further complicates the emotional sphere here. The last thing I want to ask you is, we know what happens to these men. We know that a number of them, eight or nine of them, are burnt for this crime, as it's considered at the time. And we know that the memory of it is, you know, sought to be erased, which raises all sorts of interesting questions about how many other incidents there are that we don't know about if trial records are burnt with the people. I think your findings, however, complicate what we think we know about homosexuality in the past. So what do you think this evidence should do to reshape our ideas This is a very big question, and of course I don't have an answer, I don't have a firm theory, and I think I don't want to have a firm theory at this stage. It complicates, as you say. We come from the idea that homosexual identity is a product of the 19th century. We come from the idea that pre-modern instances are situational forms of sexuality. I think that it's very difficult on 
the basis of one episode and fragmented evidence to say what happened or how we should refer to what happened. Although what I think is very important here is that we have an indication of new questions that we must ask to the pre-modern sources. How many trials we have lost, it's difficult to say, but there are certainly many references to other episodes for which perhaps we are not so well informed, but we should probably now consider a little bit more seriously and not just, let's say, leave them aside or just consider sort of anecdotal evidence, curiosities that we find in some accounts that we have for the early modern period, for instance. I think there is some evidence here for chronology, for sure, to be reconsidered. I think we cannot deny the possibilities, that's what I would probably say, that there were sentiments involved sometimes. I don't know how to call these sentiments. I think we cannot deny the evidence of quite rich attitudes towards transgression of gender norms here. If we should build the theory, I think I'm not sure. For me, as a historian, at least at this stage, is also a matter of respect for these people and the tragic end that they experienced. Absolutely. And this has been an inspiring masterclass. I wish I could talk to you for the rest of the afternoon about it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.